Thanks to Audible for supporting today's episode of Industry Focus. For a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial, go to audible.com fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I'm your healthcare show host, Christine Hargis, and it is April 5th, 2017. I have Motley Fool healthcare contributor Todd Campbell on the line. Todd, what's new? What are you writing about lately? Uh, there's just there's so much going on right now, especially in the healthcare uh, space that, that you and I have talked about, that I think it's going to be a really fun show today because we're going to kind of step back from everything and we're going to help investors get a better idea of how better to uh, maybe digest all of that information and turn it into, into profit. Yeah, today's episode is going to be a bit different than usual, as you mentioned, and I'm kind of excited for it. We are going to be exploring cognitive biases. So, why is the human brain sometimes, maybe even most of the time, not perfectly logical? And if you think about it, this kind of explains why we're able to make money in the stock market to begin with. I mean, there's, if you've studied economics, you know the efficient market hypothesis that all the information out there is already factored in and things are priced exactly as they should be. But we also know that there are ways to make more money than the average stock index in the market. And that's because people control the market and they are not always rational. Um, and if you think that psychology doesn't actually have that much to do with investing, consider that in 2002, the winner of the Nobel Prize in Economics, Daniel Kahneman, was actually a psychologist. And in fact, his work has influenced just about everything we're going to talk about today. So, yeah, I think that you, Christine, you know, it's really interesting to to think about the connection between the way that we think about the world, or or the way our bodies work, or where brain works. And the decisions that we end up making, and I found it also interesting to think about, you know, how do we even get to the point where we decided on, you know, tackling this kind of a subject on our show? And I think that it really stems from the fact that you and I are having a discussion about risk, and <clears throat> how people view risk in their decision making. And arguably, when it comes to risk, uh, you know, we talk a lot about biotech. And perhaps there's no other industry in the market that but presents um, the similar type of risk reward uh, that could lead us to make <clears throat> good or bad decisions, depending on how you know we view the information that's put in front of us. Exactly. And we say all the time, you need to take your emotions out of investing when we talk about how volatile biotech in particular gets. But there are some specific ways that you can do that once you understand your brain a little bit better. Yeah, Kahneman's work was really pretty groundbreaking because you know, what I find most fascinating about him was that he tackled the subject of utility. You know, he basically looked at, uh, you know, economic theory and said, well, yeah, we should all act for our best interest, economic interest, but oftentimes we don't. And then he, once he realized that and, and said that, he went out and tried to figure out why that is. Why is it that sometimes we make decisions that are not in the best interest of our wallet? Exactly. And even just in terms of basic probability, sometimes people don't make the best decisions, whether it has to do with utility or if it's even more straightforward than that. Um, I figured I would kick us off with an example that kind of shows that humans are pretty terrible statisticians. So, Todd, have you heard of the Linda problem? I have. Okay. So, for our listeners, if you haven't heard of this problem, here's the quick and dirty. Linda is in a survey described as 31 years old, single, outspoken, and very bright. She majored in philosophy. As a student, she was deeply concerned with issues of discrimination and social justice and also participated in anti-nuclear demonstrations. Which is more probable? 
the survey respondents were asked. Number one, Linda is a bank teller. Or option number two, Linda is a bank teller and is active in the feminist movement. Yeah, so so give our listeners a, a second to digest that and and to weigh in with what they think is the most probable answer. All right, listeners, take your second, hit pause if you haven't actually come to a conclusion yet. So the answer is that it's more probable for her to be a bank teller simply because it's impossible for number two to be more probable, because in order for her to be option number two, a bank teller and active in the feminist movement, she has to also be a bank teller. But the fascinating thing here is that 85% of survey respondents incorrectly chose option two instead of option one. Right. They had all this information put in front of them, and it it, it was they, they jumped. They jumped in and said, OK, well, I have this information, so therefore, I am now able to make a uh, a better assessment, forgetting the logic behind how probability works. <laughs> exactly. You know, as you add more characteristics, by definition, it's going to become less probable. Yep. Yeah, you're completely correct, and it, it's crazy because you read an example like this, and you're like, "Well, you know, I would never do that." But I think, <laughs> I mean, I know at least for myself, when I was putting together notes for today's episode, I'm guilty of just about every single thing that we're about to say. Yeah, all of these things are—it's almost like they're hardwired into us, and we have to literally slow ourselves down, right? Okay, I'm leaving the witness here. Slow ourselves down in the way that we're thinking. Um, and, 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 you know, one of the things that, you know, he, he wrote about, or he talked about a lot throughout his career, Kahneman, is that, you know, there are two systems for thought, right? That we have the first system, which is fast, it's instinctive, it's emotional driven. And then a second system, which is slower, it's more deliberative, it's more logical, if you will. Yes. So, getting into some specific logical fallacies that come as a result of the way that your mind is set up with these two systems, the first one that we want to bring up is called anchoring. Todd, do you want to kick that one off? Yeah, I mean, it, did you look at the stock market closing price yesterday? Mm, no, I didn't. All right. Well, a lot of people probably did, and they're probably viewing today as either bargain priced or not bargain priced based upon whatever the recent tr- price was that they saw of the S&P 500 or they're doing it with individual stocks or whatever um, they're they're anchoring their perception of what's going on now to an arbitrary point in time that they selected be it yesterday or the day before or the week before Right. So the principle of anchoring is that you can be influenced by somewhat arbitrary numbers when you're looking at a relevant number. And it doesn't matter if the number that you were looking at is somewhat related to the current situation or if it's completely just a random number that was flashed in front of your computer screen for a second before you then looked at, say, the share price of a given stock. The point is that the brain does anchor on to this number that it saw, and then everything it sees after that, it sees with reference to that number. And so it's very easy to be tempted to catch what we call falling knives, which are stocks that are plunging. Because, say, you have been watching this stock for a month, and it's 20% lower than it was. It's pretty easy to be like, oh, well, that must be a bargain then, because that 20% lower number is a good deal farther down than the original number is. But you do need to look beyond that and, and try not to get too caught up in framing your current valuation based on a previous valuation when the situation may have changed and that sort of plunge may, might be warranted. 
Right. And, and it's hard to say where you might find the value in that or where the bottom may be established in that. I mean, I always think of Valiant when, when I think about anchoring and saying to myself, well, well, what's the right price for Valiant? Was it 150? Was it 110? Was it 80? Was it 70? Was it 60? And depending on when you looked at the stock or was it 10, right? When you look at the stock, it's going to influence your decision of whether or not you think it's 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 a deal, a bargain or not. And that's why you have to step back from that and slow down and say, okay, I have to understand the story better. I have to not jump to a conclusion quickly on this. I have to understand why it is that the stock is falling rather than be anchored to this perception that, of, of this number that I saw at this point in time. Right. And a heads up for listeners, we will probably be referencing a bunch of different healthcare stocks and stories that we've covered in the past. If the quick recaps leave you wanting more or say you're not familiar with the backstory, shoot me an email at industryfocus@fool.com, and I'll send you either a past episode if we've talked about it on the show, or I can at least send you some relevant articles just because we have a lot to cover. And so we're going to try not to get too in the weeds about any specific companies. So, yes, uh, from there, let's move on to another concept that. This one might be the most important of all of the ones that we're going to discuss today, and this is loss aversion. The principle behind this one is that it is people will will act to try to minimize their losses more than they will act to try to to attain gain because it hurts more to lose, say, ten dollars than the magnitude of the good feelings from winning ten dollars. Yeah, and you know you could look at the other way too. Once you've made your decision. Uh, and then if it turns out to be wrong, then you tend to view things more optimistically than you should too. So there's two two components to that, right? You have the, okay, I'm going to make a decision that throws out logic, if you will, uh, just because uh, you know I'm afraid of losing. You know, if I have $500, I can make $500 or lose $500, right? It's the same amount either, you know, it's just this, uh, the, uh, of, of loss or gain, yet you're going to not make the trade because you don't want to lose the $500, right? Well, if you make the bet, then you're more likely to think, okay, the bet's going to pan out than if not, and that's not necessarily true. Exactly. And very much intertwined in there is the sunk cost fallacy, which is what you're alluding to there, where if you've already purchased into a stock, you might be less likely to sell it and then buy something else, which I am absolutely, totally guilty of sitting on losers that I know I would never buy into at the current price. But yeah, I'm still sitting on them like, okay, maybe it'll turn around eventually. But once I sell, I'm locking into that loss. I bet you every single listener out there right now that has a portfolio that has different investments in it is sitting on a few of these stocks, Christine. You're not you and I are not alone in this. Yeah. Um, it, it's so it's, prevalent. It, it you know, we always used to joke way back in the day as the hope and prayer method of investment management, where you buy the stock and you're just hoping and praying that something happens to make it go up because all it's done is it's it's gone down gone down. And and you know, like you said, I have no interest in going out and buying it now because the catalyst has changed or whatever. Yet, why is it that I'm, you know, so afraid or, or unwilling to take the loss, admit defeat, and move on to another better idea? And you know, in healthcare space, over the past couple few years, Christine, you and I have talked about various stocks, and you know, two that jump out. One was a, a complete disaster. The other uh, was a temporary disaster that's kind of building back up. And those were Optotech and Portola Pharmaceuticals, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah both we of us. Op- we both were shareholders. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we owned it. We we both owned it. Uh, we talked about it at different times on the show. Optotech had an interesting drug in phase three. That trial was a miserable failure, and the stock lost the majority of its value. Uh, and then you've got Portolo that had a couple 
FDA decisions that were postponed. So you had to look at it if you and make a decision based on that story. Or were you going to hold? Had something changed? The catalyst changed to that story that would make you want to sell or not sell. In my view, the opposite of that catalyst had changed significantly, and there's no reason to continue to hold it. But in the Portolo, the catalyst had just been pushed back. So there is a reason to hold it. Right. And so that's another reason why it's so important to keep an investing journal. Write down why you're buying into these stocks and what could potentially change the reason that you have for holding them. That way you can easily reference it, and hopefully you'll be more inclined to sell a loser that deserves a sell. So we will be back with more cognitive biases after this quick break. Thanks to Audible for supporting our podcast. Audible has an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original shows, news, comedy, and more. Audiobooks are great to listen to when you are commuting, running, or doing housework. For our dozens of listeners, Audible is offering a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial. If you want to listen to it, Audible has it. Just go to audible.com fool and browse their unmatched selection of audio content. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. I am currently making my way through, and this is probably not going to come to as a surprise to anyone who is listening to this episode, but I'm uh, making my way through Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, which obviously has hugely shaped today's show. This book has so much insight into how the human mind works, and it's all directly applicable to understanding human behavior, which is at the root of both economics and investing. So I highly recommend it, and you can try out this or any other audiobook for free with a 30-day free trial at audible.com fool. That is audible.com fool. All right, Todd, let's dive back into some more cognitive biases. Talk to me about framing. Well, you know, framing is something that we absolutely have to pay attention to, especially as biotech investors. Uh, because we're always receiving on a daily basis press releases from companies that we may be interested in. And if we don't understand that there can be some uh, framing of words or numbers um, that would be more inclined for us to view them favorably, uh, then we might fall victim to that bias and end up going out and buying when maybe we should dig deeper and not do that. Right. So a quick background on what this concept is. Here's an example for you. When asked if people would opt into this semi-elective surgery, some people uh, had the surgery described to them as having a 10% mortality rate, and other people in the study were just have had it described as having a 90% survival rate. So that's 10% mortality versus 90% survival. That's the same thing, but it's phrased in very different ways. And it turns out more people elected for the surgery when it was described as having a 90% survival rate. So that's in the world of healthcare, but not necessarily investing related. How could that possibly apply to investing? Yeah, I, I think that there's a few different things. One of the things that jumped right out to me is, is kind of the shift years ago, especially when we're talking about the internet boom. So I'm dating myself a little bit. But we were where we shifted a lot of the press releases shifted from from talking about their earnings per share to their EBITDA figures. So kind of shifting the focus away from traditional net income towards these other measurements uh, that they you know wanted us to believe were were equally as valid. And you know unfortunately, in the, when the internet boom uh, became a bust we found that, no, there really is no substitute for good old-fashioned net income and net earnings. Um, there are a lot of different uh, periods or, or times as a biotech investor that you're going to look at a press release 
and and try and digest the meaning of it. Make sure that you always slow yourself down and don't jump to conclusions about the findings. Make sure you try and get as much information as you can before doing that because it could very well be that you know they're putting their best foot forward uh, and, and that's going to fake you out. And I don't think that there is any malicious intent there most of the time. It's just kind of a fact that the positive news is usually going to come out first, whether it's in a press release or the earnings call. These companies are going to say the best things first, and that positions you to have a positive idea of the company and and prepares you to hear maybe the next bad news in a more positive way. True. So, next uh, bias that we want to talk about is called the confirmation bias. If anybody was on our website on April 1st, you may have seen our April Fool's Day joke, which was called the Motley Fool Echo Chamber. And it was this very elaborate and well done, snaps for that team, uh, joke construction where you would click on the, the top of site article and it would take you to the Echo Chamber, which was this tool that you could use to refine the way news was presented to you such that it would only send you things that you already agreed with. And of course, this was a joke, you know, we were kind of playing on news lately and some various things that we've all seen going on. But there's a lot of truth to it. You are actually more likely to click on an article that has a headline that you agree with. Or even if you read something that you don't agree with, you're more likely to to dismiss it as flawed rather than truly considering any sort of contrary evidence to what you currently think. Christine, I got so faked out by that. <laughs> Did you? Joke. Todd, yeah, you know, work for the Motley Fool. Every... You know it's April 1st. I know, I know. And every year, uh, listeners, they, they do something special like this. And yet, I got sucked in and was like, what? I don't understand. <laughs> That's kind of awesome. <laughs> you know, when, when I was thinking about confirmation bias, the first thing I thought of was a quote by Voltaire, which was that illusion is the first of all pleasures. And, you know, what I think Voltaire was saying there is that, you know, f- that we get incredible joy and happiness from um, uh, interpreting information that backs up what we already believe. And that is extremely risky as investors. I mean, you can maybe less risky. So if maybe you're just buying the S&P 500 index fund, but if you're buying individual stocks, you know, you want to have divergent thoughts. You want to have you know, and listen to people who who are approaching things differently than you are, because, you know, it'll either solidify your argument or it will, you know, lead you to a, a, a new argument. And I think that that is that is incredibly, incredibly important for investors uh, in order to to generate long term success in the markets, because the reality is that, you know, it's very easy to think that you're the smartest stock picker in the world when the stock market is going up. Exactly. So, avoid confirmation bias if you can. It's pretty impossible, but at least being aware of it, maybe you can try. Um, And that's what The Motley Fool is here to help you do, by the way. If you go to our website, you can almost always find conflicting views on various stocks. We are a very motley company, so we have people that are bulls and bears on the exact same stock. Anyway, the next bias that we wanted to talk about was the peak end rule, which is something that I will tee off by talking about a 1993 Kahneman study, which showed that participants that were exposed to 30 seconds of 14 degree ice water, which is super cold, rated the experience as more painful than participants that were exposed to 60 seconds of 14 degree ice water plus 
30 additional seconds of 15 degree ice water. So, in other words, participants found that 90 seconds of ice water exposure was actually less painful than just the 60 seconds of pretty much equally cold water, just because the 90 second exposure ended with a somewhat warmer temperature water. Yeah, and we're only talking about a degree, yet that for some reason that was enough to offset the extra 30 seconds of freezing cold water. Kahneman also referenced another study uh, recently, uh, well, not recently, I just watched a TED Talk uh, that he had hosted, and it was fascinating, so check it out, uh, listeners, if you can. And the, one, the example that he gave on the TED Talk was about colonoscopies, and essentially what happened is same same exact finding, is you had people who had a shorter colonoscopy and then people who had a longer colonoscopy. But in the longer colonoscopy, there was less movement of the instrument, et cetera, so there was less associated pain for that additional time. And sure enough, people walked away thinking, oh, that was less painful, even though they were, uh, by all measures, they were exposed to a longer period of discomfort. I think it's a very interesting finding. Exactly. And so the point of it is that the way that you remember experiences in your life has so much to do with the very final moment of that experience. So how does that relate to investing? Well, you know, we talked a lot about he talks a lot about happiness and how it's not about the experience. It's about, like you said, the end, what we remember and the last final uh, uh, thing of it. And, you know, one of the things that he had mentioned was that someone had told him about how they had gone to the symphony. The symphony was phenomenal. It was the best symphony ever for 15 minutes. And it ended with this big screeching noise and and it ruined it for him because the only thing that he could think now of was the screeching noise, not the 15 minutes of, of enjoyment. And I think what's, what we have to worry about is we have to worry about looking at it and saying, okay, well, um, you know, I either lost money or I made money at the, on this stock at this point in time and forget all of the other uh, things that went into the decision-making process or the other variables that could have affected whether or not the stock rose or fall in the period. You have to consider the experience too. You can't just focus on the end result. And, you know, tip, pro tip, right, for for listeners, you've already mentioned it once, is journal, 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 journal. I mean, it's so important to write down why it is that you, you're, you're, you're buying a stock and then to keep track of how it's going, things that are happening. It's that way you can go back and you can look at it and you can relive the experience of it, not just have that final takeaway of, oh, I lost money or, oh, I made money. And you know, the other pro tip that I would, I would give out is to you know, Kahneman's advice was to frown. Because what what he found is that if you frown, (laughs) you're more willing to uh, be critical of the information that you're being presented with. So (laughs) normally I would say smile more, right? But maybe every once in a while throw a frown on your face as you're looking at, at information about a stock you hold. Maybe you'll come to a new conclusion. That is super interesting. So um, I think the next thing that we want to talk about is pretty related to that because this uh, peak end rule says that you most easily remember the very end of an experience. So the next thing that we want to talk about has to do with how easy is it to think of an example that is relevant to the question that you're trying to answer. And this is called the availability heuristic. So for example, you might be looking into a drug maker that makes something for one specific disease. And uh, you're watching the, the company's numbers get 
bid up and bid up. And that could actually just be because a competing, not even a competing, a company working in a similar space but with a totally different drug is seeing positive results. And so the way the availability heuristic plays in there is that it's easy to think on the top of your head, like, oh, yeah, I just saw positive diabetes results the other day. Like, this unrelated diabetes company must also be onto something good and bid it up. And so it can be kind of difficult to recall the entire spectrum of everything that's ever happened. In fact, that would be totally impossible to do. But the problem here is that we can rely a bit too much on the things that are readily able to be recalled. Right. One of the things, Christine, that I wanted to mention, too, I worry that people are going to fall into this trap for this bias when they're looking at and hearing about marijuana and reform that's going on with marijuana laws. I mean, a lot of positive momentum for passing these laws and talking about the potential market opportunity for marijuana stocks. And it'd be very easy for people to have a, a kind of take a brush stroke and, and say, okay, all of these stocks, their play, their marijuana stocks are going to do well, when the reality is that, you know, very few will end up being the winners. Exactly. When one issue is in the news a ton, it's so easy to think that it could impact your investment. But realistically, lawmakers could be completely focused on different issues. And news actually does relate to this quite a bit. Like, for example, when when you think about uh, media coverage of different diseases, it can sometimes drastically impact your view of the market. And I, I think people are sometimes more inclined to bid up shares of companies that are working in diseases that are getting a lot of coverage, as opposed to ones that might actually be much more prevalent and have a lot larger of a market, but you don't really hear about as much. And the, the example that came to mind for me was diabetes spending versus spending on ALS, which is the Lou Gehrig's disease. It's the one that you heard about with the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge, ALS spending annually is estimated to be between 256 and 433 million nationally. You look at diabetes, just the direct medical costs are 176 billion with a B every single year. Yeah, it's a, it's a tremendous huge market. So the, the thinking there would be, well, that any stock that has anything to do with diabetes is going to be a stock that I want to own. Or if you happen to be looking at a stock and you happen to see the word diabetes and you just read an article about the diabetes market, you're more likely to be positively influenced uh, in your assessment of that stock. And that's that's risky. So just make sure that, again, you're slowing down, maybe frowning a little bit and, uh, and thinking about the experience and all of the two plus two plus twos, not just the end result, whatever that number might be at the end of the calculation. Right. So we are almost approaching the end of the episode. We have one more cognitive bias to share. This one is called substitution. And it's basically replacing a complex issue with something simpler because your brain is kind of lazy, whether you like to believe it or not. So the way that I've heard this explained before is it's an issue of changing a question like, how happy are you with your life? Which is a very complex question you will instinctively turn that into, what's my mood right now? Which is an easier question to answer. Yeah, substitution, I mean, I'm picture almost like a tab, and you've got a check mark in this column and a check mark in this column, and it's all based upon, example, the, the memories, not the experiences. So, is my final memory of the symphony, that was negative, so I'm putting that in the negative camp. And so, it's easy to, easier to say, well, I don't want to go to the symphony now because I had a bad experience in the last one, but that's not necessarily the, the way that it is. You know, taking a look at from the healthcare perspective, saying, okay, do I really want to dig in and figure out, you know, how Gilead Sciences uh, uh, clinical stage drug for autoimmune uh, disorders is, you know, really impacting the central nervous system or immune system or whatever. Or do I want to just say, well, you know, they've done a great job in the past, so I'm just going to assume that, you know, they've got the management there to figure it out. 
Right. And even going back to the Linda problem from the earlier uh, part of the show, Kahneman and his research partner, Amos Tversky, argued that in judging whether or not it's more likely for Linda to have been a bank teller or a feminist bank teller, the people in the study relied on resemblance between Linda's personality and her behavior. So that's kind of an example of substitution because the people that were asked that question turned it from an issue that was a probabilistic calculation into one of simply just matching up causes and effects. So, um, I guess to end the episode today, the last thing I wanted to touch on is that we're biased even after being told that we're biased. And this is kind of crazy, but here's one final experiment for our listeners to chew on. Kahneman describes an experiment known as the Invisible Gorilla. And in this experiment, participants watched a short film of two teams passing basketballs. One team was wearing white shirts, the other team was wearing black. The viewers of the film were instructed to count the number of passes made by the white shirt team, ignoring the players that were wearing black. And halfway through the video, this woman is wearing a gorilla suit and she appears, she crosses the court, she thumps on her chest and she moves on. So the gorilla is in the frame for about nine seconds. And thousands of people have seen this video, but because they're so completely absorbed in the counting task, about half of them don't notice anything unusual when they're asked afterwards. And even more interestingly, people who missed the gorilla are initially extremely stubborn, saying that there was no gorilla. So after you've listened to this episode, I would encourage all of you listeners to go through your portfolio, your track record, your diary of investing theses, which you hopefully have, and try to spot the cognitive biases that may have subconsciously influenced you. And you may be surprised how many gorillas are lurking in plain sight. Todd, thank you so much for doing this episode with me. I have had a blast. That was a lot of fun. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Today's episode was produced by Austin Morgan. For Todd Campbell, I'm Christine Hargis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on!